Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. So I recently began watching a documentary entitled World War II in Color, and it begins with the German blitzkrieg attacks in Europe as they tried to overtake uh, continental Europe. One of the more fascinating things that I didn't know about is that just prior to the invasion of France, the German army, all its vehicles, had lined up on the roads outside the Ardennes Forest. And French spy planes actually flew over this giant logjam of German military transports, tanks, panzer divisions, and came back with the particular insights, the reconnaissance that said, there's a German invasion force on this road. And the French generals didn't believe the reconnaissance that came back because they were stuck in a World War I mindset. They did not believe at all that the Germans would send their forces through the Ardennes Forest. What is sadly fascinating about that particular fact is that for a period of hours to a few days, if the French Air Force had sent their bombers and their fighter planes to those German vehicles, they could have severely crippled the German military and possibly averted uh, at least a great portion of World War II as we know it. But of course, that's not what happened. They didn't believe the reconnaissance, and they ended up within two weeks of that particular momentous event signing an armistice that would essentially give the entire country of France to Germany and, it, and basically allow Germany to rule continental Europe and lead us into World War II as we know it. Now, why do I begin a sermon with an illustration about war? Because Peter tells us we're at war. In fact, it's striking to me how that particular illustration leads into something very specific that Peter says. Peter tells us that we are at war. And as a result of being at war, the undergirding application or how we interpret this passage of Scripture, who we're at war with and who we're not at war with, should guide the way that we wrestle with this particular text. And this is a text, a passage of Scripture, 1 Peter 2, 11 through 17, that is worth us wrestling with and struggling with. I'd ask, if you will, to join me in reading, beginning in verse 11. Peter writes, Beloved, or dear friends, and that is included, the word agape is included in that word beloved. He's talking about people he cares for deeply. It's a transition word. It reminds us that there's something different going on in this section of Scripture. It introduces a new series or new topic. He said, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of your flesh which wage war against your soul. And that's the war. The war is that you and I are facing passions and wicked desires within us. And Peter goes on to write, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak out against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. 
Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. I've spent the last eight or nine days or so wrestling with this passage of Scripture, struggling with it, struggling with how to preach it, how to be clear about it, And one of the reasons why I think that opening illustration sets the tone so helpfully for us is it is really insightful for Peter to remind us who we are at war with and who we are not at war with. If I stood up and said to you, I'm going to preach a sermon that deals with American politics, then a war illustration fits rather nicely in 2021. We are divided, we are at odds with one another, we're in discord. The, the, the far right and the far left and the middle right and the middle left don't, don't particularly appear to like one another. And if we wanted to use a war term, terminology, then it would fit. The problem is, at least as far as that's concerned with this particular text, Peter doesn't say we're at war with other people. And in reality... The fact of Christians living under Nero's reign, Nero being the emperor at the time, and the persecution that he was about to unleash on Christians, and the persecution that would be unleashed on Christians underneath the Roman Empire over the next 250 years or so, Peter, if he were writing from our perspective, or from a perspective of humanity and human angst, it would be easy for him to say, okay, our war is with the Roman government. Our war is with the people who don't like us. But I want you to know something very clearly. Peter only says in the book of 1 Peter that we're at war with two people. We're at war with ourselves, the passions of our own soul. We're at war with our own sinful nature. And then he says we're at war with an enemy called Satan. A a destroyer, a lion he describes him as in 1 Peter chapter 5. He does not say we're at war with one another. He doesn't say that those who are on the other side of a political debate are our enemies. Rather, he says something entirely different. He gives us a picture, he gives us a statement, a declaration that should guide how we as sojourners act in the world around us. Let me make two introductory statements that I think are necessary for us as we kind of work through this passage of Scripture. First is this. We need to recognize the unavoidable tension present In a text like this, for all believers everywhere, but particularly for citizens of the USA. And here's why. Because this passage of Scripture recognizes a tension between our rights as citizens, as American citizens, and our responsibilities as Christians. And that is an unavoidable tension at certain times. Because it is our temptation, as we read a passage of Scripture like this, it's our temptation to bring it forward... 2,000 years, and only interpret it in light of the rights and the privileges we have as Americans. In other words, we read it and we say, okay, but, hold on a second, but I can, I can vote, I can, I can protest, I, I can have civil disobedience, I can act in a different way. Yes, Peter, you're right, but you're writing for people way back then. What about us now? And because of the rights I have, can I act differently? Can I think differently? And and there's a tension there. There's a tension. Uh, Thomas Kidd recognized this in his book, God of Liberty. He said one key idea was that Christian doctrine favored limited government power, especially over the individual conscience. 
God had instituted government, but the fallible people in public office could easily become tyrants if given too much power. To many Protestants, the long history of religious oppression from the ancient Roman Empire to the 18th century Catholic monarchies of Europe indicated how easily a strong government could violate religious liberty. And Thomas Kidd recognized that in light of the evangelicals who supported the, America's, the colony's war for independence. And it formed the framework of the country in which we live. So I just want us to underscore that there is a tension And we're not going to walk out of here having solved that tension, but I think we can walk out of here understanding how Scripture expects us to behave. And here's why. I am very grateful, as you should be, for the religious freedom embedded in the mission that brought the pilgrims to the the new world, that was embraced by our founding fathers, that it was encouraged by our Baptist forefathers like John Leland, who supported religious, religious liberty. But I stand before you today not as an American citizen. I stand before you today as a Christian, a pastor, and ultimately a citizen of a greater king and a greater kingdom and a greater mission and a greater purpose than I could ever stand before you as an American or ever stand before you with rights that I'm holding on to as the citizen of this country. There's a second introductory comment that I think is important for me to make. And it uh, revolves around the tendency of a passage like this to create an opportunity for, uh, for, for recognizing what some churches have done and what other churches have done in the midst of this particular pandemic. When I sensed God leading us to work through the book of 1 Peter, I knew this text was here. And I knew that we would be working through this passage of Scripture. Because for the last 11 or 12 months or so, much of the way that churches have had to respond or have responded in light of governor, governor mandates and challenges and social distancing and masks and all those things have been as a result of what we've been told to do by government officials. And so there is there's a tension point with how in the world do we operate inside of these ramifications and protocols, what do we do? And one of the tension points with a passage like this is to create a comparison uh, kind of model. Well, you've got some churches over here that aren't meeting at all. So, well, bless God, we're doing better than they are. And you've got some churches over here that aren't doing any protocols at all. And then we could compare ourselves and say, well, we're not, we're not, we're, we're better than that. What I want to make sure that you understand is that this passage of Scripture really doesn't lead us to get very specific on how we should respond in the middle of a pandemic. I want to say up front that I'm very thankful I live in the state of North Carolina and that our church exists in the state of North Carolina. I don't think we as Christians in our state have experienced much direct religious persecution underneath governor mandates and statewide orders. But there are some churches in places like California, places like Michigan and other places across our great country that have experienced what I would say would be direct or if not direct, really strong indirect religious persecution. And so this particular passage of scripture might be taught or preached a little differently in light of that particular instance. What I do want to tell you is any way that we've engaged with protocols and plans and all that kind of stuff has been done thoughtfully and not perfectly but thoughtfully, and we tried to do so with care and compassion in mind and a recognition that the government has a mandate to protect its citizens. So, uh, that's the introductory comments. Let's look at what the text actually tells us. 
The text tells us that sojourners, that's us, we're exiles. This isn't our home. This isn't our permanent residence. We've got another place we're going to live one day. That's heaven. We're sojourners. Sojourners need to exhibit an attitude of submission to government authorities because an attitude of submission to government authorities was Jesus' default attitude. That's the primary point of this particular message. Uh, There are three principles for sojourners living in submission to government. The first one is this. Our model for submission to authorities is Jesus himself. Our, Our model is not some other image. Our model is Jesus. In this passage of scripture, Peter begins a series of direct instructions to the church for how they're to conduct themselves outside of the church. Last week, we looked at how Peter identified the church through Jesus Christ. And in three successive illustrations, Peter is going to emphasize the submissive nature of Christians in light of specific relationships. First, and the one we're going to look at tonight, today, Sunday, is being subject to governments. The second relationship is slaves being subject to masters or employees being subject to employers. And the third is wives being subject to husbands. And we'll get at those in succession as Peter works through each of those specifics. But the point Peter is making focuses not as much on the behavior of Christians, though that is significant. It focuses on the model of Jesus that gives us the image by which we're to gauge the way we're to behave with others. In fact, what Peter does later in next week's sermon, we'll discover this. He grounds the need for us to submit to masters through Jesus' illustration of what he did on the cross. Jesus, when he was standing there before government officials, when he was standing there as a slave underneath governing masters, that image there, Jesus didn't revile. Jesus didn't defend himself. Jesus didn't talk back. Jesus didn't sin with his mouth. Jesus was completely innocent. And yet, what did he do? He hung on a cross. He bore your sins and my sins on a cross on Calvary. Why? Why did he do that? Was Jesus not innocent? Absolutely Jesus was innocent. Could Jesus have not defended himself? Let me tell you something. If he were a red-blooded American citizen, I can tell you he would have, it would not have been surprising for him to use every advocate possibility that he had at his disposal. He would have gotten a lawyer and he might have raised a lawsuit. He would have defended himself. He would have picketed. He would have protested if that were his motivation. But Jesus didn't do any of those things. He was innocent. He would have been in the right. People could have recognized that he was there standing under, unlawfully standing under governing officials who would preside over his death. And yet what did Jesus do? He willingly accepted the false, wrong, sinful, wicked, unjust ruling that would send him to the cross. And why did Jesus do that? Well, Peter says he did it for our example. And we'll get to that in a moment. But more importantly, Jesus did that for our salvation. He did that because he knew that the only way that we could be forgiven and redeemed was if he didn't bring a lawsuit against Roman officials, if he didn't go to court against the Sanhedrin, if he didn't stand up for whatever rights that someone would have said he had, if Jesus didn't go to the cross, we wouldn't be saved. We wouldn't be forgiven. We wouldn't be redeemed. 
So Jesus gives us a model that is intensely countercultural. He gives us a picture, a behavior of submission to authorities and submission to masters that is unique in the course of world and human history. And he gives us a picture and a model that Peter says, you and I are to take after this model. You and I are to act in a way that is more consistent with Jesus than is consistent with the behavior of so many of those around us. And our model for submission to authorities is Jesus himself. And that model is intended to be redemptive. I want to tell you something. If you're watching, if you're paying attention, if you're on Facebook or YouTube and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, let me assure you, Jesus went to the cross for your sins and for my sins. Every time you've broken God's law, every time you've been wicked or sinful, Jesus went to the cross so that that sin could be paid for. He bore your sins and my sins in his body on the cross so that you could be forgiven. If you'd like to know more about being forgiven through Jesus Christ and you'd like to reach out to us, there will be some information on the screen. Our church website will be on the screen uh, and, and an email from our church website that you can contact us. We'd love to tell you how you can make yourself or bring yourself into a right relationship with Jesus because of what he did on the cross. For those of us that are believers, we need to be uh, shaken by this statement that Peter makes that our model for submission to government is in Jesus. He's the example. He's the picture put forward that when you and I interact with whoever is in governing authority, Jesus is our model. Our motivation, what's our motivation for submitting to governing authorities? Our motivation for submission to governing, governing authorities is the will of God. Should you notice what Peter says very clearly? He says in verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What's the point Peter's making? He's saying, listen, the way you're to behave around others is so that they'll see your good deeds, they'll see your behavior, they'll see your humility, they'll see your acknowledgement of, of things that are good to do and right to do and good behavior, and they'll, they'll honor God. They'll praise God and glorify God. Just a few weeks ago, Pastor Tad preached a passage of Scripture. It's very similar to this. When Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, he told us that we're salt to be salt and light. We're to be salt and light so that our good deeds will be seen by others outside the body of Christ. And so that those good deeds that are seen will bring glory to God. And Peter draws from that very same point that Jesus made in the Sermon on the Mount to make this very point in regard to submission to authorities. You and I are to act in a way that's consistent with God's will. God's will is that we're to be, sub to be in submission to governing authorities. Why? So that the world around us, when they see us and look at us and question us and decry Christian behavior, will not have any grounds to truthfully decry Christian behavior. In other words, the character in which we exhibit ourselves around others points to Jesus. The, the picture of this is, is that when we embrace Jesus' model and when our motivation is the will of God, we will stand out. We'll look different. We'll look and act in a way that is, um, that's attractive to the world around us, that draws people to our Jesus and draws people to the Messiah who wants to redeem them and forgive them. Another specific that Peter mentions, verse 13, he goes on to say, be subject to the Lord's sake for every human institution. Did you catch that for the Lord's sake? He doesn't just say be subject to every human institution. He says be subject 
for the Lord's sake to every human institution. It's part of God's expectation that you and I submit ourselves to governing authorities. Why? Uh, whether to the emperor, supreme, or governors who are sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. Verse 15, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Peter's point is this, that by the way we behave, our motivation, doing the will of God, submitting to governing authorities, acting in a way that glorifies and praises God, acting in a way that benefits others, should not give reason, give reason to people outside the body of Christ to criticize us, but should give reason for people outside the body of Christ to acknowledge that we've done the right thing or done good things with our behavior. Peter is a little more um, striking in his language. He said, put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Uh, he could have been writing for the media in 2021. Seems to me that there are a lot of folks that like to hear themselves talk and all they are is full of ignorance and bluster. And they like to say things that aren't true and too often, they're not held accountable when they say things that aren't true. But the reality of what we should do as Christians is make sure that the way we behave with regard to local politics, mayors, and, and those local officials, county officials, state officials, national officials, the way we should respond to them is respond in a way that is underneath the will of God, that's in a behavior and an attitude that's submissive. Why? So that there won't be an accusation that can stick. Too often, though, our behavior as Christians is more like everybody else. We say things like, I didn't get my rights, so I'm going to sue. Or we say things like, the vote didn't go my way, so I'm going to go out and protest. Or we say things like, laws were passed that I don't like, so I'm going to ignore them. Or we say things like this, he's not my president. And so I'm not going to submit to my government because I didn't vote for him. And that can, be ha that can happen on both sides of the political aisle. But you know what? That's just like so many others in our culture. The division and the divide and the self-focus uh, and, and the bluster and the attitude that is, that is prideful. The attitude that everything's about me. The attitude that everything's about my way and me getting my way. Let me tell you something. When we as Christians respond the way Peter tells us to respond. With submission. With humility. With a godly and Christ-like attitude. Let me tell you what it does. It makes us look different. It, it, it helps us to stand out. And instead of me saying, I'm not going to do this because I don't like it, say, I'm going to do this because I respect the law and I respect our country and I respect the office of those who are in charge. I'm going to respect that. What does that do? It, it gives me a platform to say, I'm doing this because I'm honoring Jesus. Because my f primary focus is on obeying the will of God. Did you catch that? The Lord's sake. It, 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 Peter was writing at a time to a people. He wasn't saying that you're to obey Nero and you're to obey governors because they're nice, good guys. I mean, this is the governor, governors like Pontius Pilate, governors like Herod, uh, kings like Herod, uh, emperors like Nero who would fiddle while Rome burned and then blame Christians and light them as torches. I mean, these are not honorable men. Yet Peter said, for the Lord's sake, be subject to these institutions, these supreme authorities. Why? Because it will make you stand out. You will look different. You will look in a way that will glorify God. So our motivation, motivation for submission to authorities is the will of God. 
Third principle that we find in the text is our manner of submission to authorities. Our manner is an attitude of humility and a free conscience. What do I mean by that? We'll pick up where Peter is. Verse 16, he writes, live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. What's the point uh, that Peter is getting at? Peter is writing to believers to help them know what their bent, what their lean attitude should be. In other words, where, where should our default attitude be? Too often what happens when something goes on that we don't like, our default position is... I'm going to fight for my rights. I'm going to get angry about that. I'm going to call and argue. I'm going to fuss. I'm going to protest. That, that's too often our bent. That's our first response. That's our default position. What Peter says is we're free. We're free in Jesus. And our default position, our lean attitude, our bent, what we should do on a regular basis is be humble and be submissive and be thoughtful and be intelligent Why? Because the motivation is so that people will see Jesus. The motivation is so that people will see us, not as people who are trying to stir up and cause a fight and fuss and and argue and debate, so that people will see Jesus in and through us. Like that song we just sang. They'll know we're Christians by our love. But I wonder how many of us, if, if someone watched our political reactions over the last two and a half or three or four or five years, and they listened to our commentary when certain political decisions were made or elections happened, I wonder if anybody would confuse us for loving Christians in those moments. And if they wouldn't, then Peter's point to us is this, your attitude is wrong. And your attitude is not Christ-like, and you're not following the model of Jesus. You're rather following the model of self. And you're focusing on things that aren't going to set us apart and distinguish us in a culture that is desperately in need for people who aren't like everybody else. Do you catch the, the significance of this? If you and I can behave with an attitude of humility and service and love, no matter what happens with our governing authorities, if we can behave with that attitude, let me tell you something. That's the kind of attitude that our nation needs. That's the kind of attitude that your neighbors will look at and say, hold on a second, there's something different about that person. What is wrong with Wilkesboro Baptist Church? They're not acting like us. Why is that? Well, because Jesus is controlling our attitude and our demeanor. And the only way this can happen is if Jesus is indwelling us and living through us. But if Jesus is indwelling us and living through us in this kind of attitude, then let me promise you something, it will stand out in the world in which we live. And that's the point Peter's trying to make. He wants us to recognize that we have an obligation to look different in the culture that surrounds us so that people will see Jesus And not just see a bunch of people claiming a bunch of rights. And arguing and debating and fussing and being angry. Martin Luther put it this way. And I think this is very appropriate. He said, a Christian man is the most free Lord of all and subject to none. A Christian man is the most beautiful servant of all and subject to everyone. Luther's point, and this is something we ought to grasp and we ought to be desperately thankful for. When Jesus made you free, 
Folks, he made you completely free. You're no longer bound to sin. You're no longer underneath the curse of sin. You're no longer underneath the curse of Satan. We're no longer underneath, ultimately, governing authorities. And what I mean by that is, yes, we're to be submissive to them, but we answer to a king who is far greater than our president. And we answer to laws that are far deeper than the laws of our land, the civil laws, even the Bill of Rights. We answer to a government, a government, a government underneath Jesus that is far superior to anything you and I will ever experience. Shoot, we answer to a Jesus who when we get to where he is, there's never going to be a need for a mask. There's never going to be a need for a hospital. There's never going to be a need for speed laws. There's never going to need be a need for any of those things. Why? Because he's perfect and the land we're going to is perfect. So you know what? We are free. You are completely and totally free. And by that, you're free to behave in any way you choose to. But Peter says it this way. He says, listen... Don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but live as servants of God. Recognize that you are completely free, and as completely free people, choose to serve everyone. Choose to love everyone. Choose to behave in ways that glorify God. Choose to behave in ways that care about other people. Let me make some practical considerations as we conclude this sermon. So, how about this one? Should we wear a mask or should we not wear a mask? I, I, I think, I think, based on what I've read, that masks do help contain the spread of COVID if everybody's wearing one. Of course, I'm not as I'm speaking, but there's no way you could hear me speak if I had a mask on. You get that, and we're so appropriately distanced in this room. But, but let me tell you this, you're free. Wear a mask or don't wear a mask. You are absolutely, completely free. Now, we have mandates and expectations But what should we do as followers of Jesus? Why do we encourage masks? Why do we socially distance and spread out? Do we have to? No. Uh, In terms of legally, we don't. Back when the governor pressed some of his more stringent expectations on groups meeting, there was a lawsuit that was raised against him and and he backed off on that. And so churches are exempt from the statutes or the, the, the executive orders of the governor. So we don't have to social distance, and you don't have to be in a mask to be in our facility, and we're not going to get in trouble for that. But, but why do we do that? Because, folks, we love you. If there is anything we can do to keep you from getting sick, and if you getting sick sent you to the hospital and possibly would lead you to death, then you know what? That's why we encourage wearing masks. Maybe it's not the best thing to do. Maybe it is the best thing to do, but I think we're just trying to do it because we love people. So if you don't want to wear a mask, that's okay. If you do want to wear a mask, that's okay. But use your freedom to love and serve other people. That's why we're doing it. How about this one? Worship in person or worship at home? Some of you have chosen for about 11 months or so to worship at home. You know what? That's okay. I would love to see you back. I I look forward to the day when the numbers kind of adjust right and, and the vaccines adjust right and we don't have to worry about spreading out. We don't have to worry about church registrations and we don't do that because we don't want you here. We do that because, you know, we want to make sure we don't have so many people here that everybody here is uncomfortable and then because there's no worship when you're uncomfortable. I mean, it's just weird. I mean, it's just a weird time. But if you are worshiping at home, please keep worshiping home if that's what you feel comfortable doing. But worship And if you feel comfortable coming to church and worshiping in person, please come and worship in person. I promise you, it helps all of us. And it helps you. 
How about this one? Sing out or don't? They tell us that if you sing out and you have COVID, you can spread COVID. In fact, nearly every church that I've heard that's had a COVID outbreak, it's come through the praise team or the choir or those who are singing. Because when we sing, we sing out. Well, when we sing on the platform, we sing out. Not entirely sure that that's true of every parishioner, but that's okay. So if you come and you're not comfortable singing out right now, okay. Then I'm going to tell you something we have the freedom to. We ought to sing to praise our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We have the freedom to. But if it helps protect people from getting sick, then you know what? We'll, we'll kind of we'll dial that back. And we've done that by not asking you to stand and sing out all the time. Now, none of these protocols are perfect. Uh, every one of them can be quibbled with. I could take you to churches that are doing it completely different, and they've been fine doing it different. That's okay. That's why we have freedom of conscience. We're, I'm not going to answer for what other churches do. I'll only answer for how we did things and what responsibility I had in the process. But what happens if freedom of religion is imposed upon? See, I'm talking about a lot of these things from the perspective of, you know, here, here's some freedom choices that we have. But, but what if our freedom of religion is truly imposed upon? What if they come in and say, we can't preach about Jesus anymore? Or what if they keep us from meeting completely? Or what, what, if, what if, what happens in those particular scenarios and situations? Because even Peter, as he wrote this, submitting to government authorities, within a few short years, he would be hung on an upside-down cross, martyred, because he wouldn't stop preaching the gospel that he had from God. When the governing authorities told him to stop preaching the gospel that he had from God. Even Peter engaged in civil disobedience. I think um, Francis Schaeffer's words here are instructive He writes, Peter says here that civil authority is to be honored and that God is to be feared. By the way, that's the point he makes in that last verse, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Give specific behaviors and actions, honor to whom honor is due, but fear God. Our primary allegiance is not to king or president or party or politician. It is to Jesus, King Jesus. So he picks up. Peter says here that civil authority is to be honored and God is to be feared. The state, as he defines it, is to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. If this is not so, then the whole structure falls apart. Clearly, the state is to be a ministry of justice. This is the legitimate function of the state. And in this structure, Christians are to obey the state as a matter of conscience. And he cites here as well Romans 13, 15. The early Christians, though, died because they would not obey the state in a civil matter. From the Christian's viewpoint, it was for a religious reason. But from the viewpoint of the Roman state, they were in civil disobedience. They were civil rebels. See, the Roman state did not care what anybody believed religiously. You could believe anything or you could be an atheist. But you had to worship Caesar as a sign of your loyalty to the state. The Christians said they would not worship Caesar, anybody, or anything but the living God. Thus, the Roman Empire, to the Roman Empire, they were rebels. And it was civil disobedience. That's why they were thrown to the lions. Example of that would be a, a Christian martyr, a noble woman by the name of Perpetua in the early 3rd century AD. She had come to know, know Jesus recently. She and several other of her friends were in classes preparing to be baptized. She lived in North Africa at the time. 
the emperor happened to be uh, Septimus Severus. And he believed that the Christians were not exhibiting Roman patriotism. And so he instituted a time of persecution. And he targeted Christians in North Africa. And the governor there, the governor was the name, by the name of Hilaronius. And he was presiding over the emperor's wishes to persecute Christians. So he had Perpetua and some of her friends arrested. Perpetua was a young mother. She was still nursing her infant baby. And Perpetua's father, who was a pagan, and the other officials, they begged her to simply light a candle of sacrifice to worship the emperor. If she would do that, she could take her baby, nurse her baby, go home and live however she wanted to live. She wouldn't do it. They asked her, would she make the sacrifice to the emperor as a statement of acknowledgement that the emperor is supreme? For Perpetua, Jesus alone is supreme. So she said, I will not. The governor asked her, are you a Christian then? She simply said, yes. So Perpetua and her friends were brought to the arena, thrown to the wild animals, who ironically did not kill them fast enough. So the Roman crowds, the North African crowds, cried out for their quick deaths, and the gladiators came into the arena and killed them with swords. Civil disobedience. Might it ever come to that in our country? Maybe to that extent, maybe not to that extent. But I'll tell you this. If we acknowledge Jesus as supreme, and because we acknowledge Jesus as supreme, we have an attitude that bends towards submitting to government. When it comes to direct orders where government says, this is what you can do, but God says, this is what you must do. Then you know what? Stories like Perpetua's, And stories like ours may stand out. Because they acknowledge that our allegiance is to a greater king. The reason we submit to governing authorities is ultimately because we have a model of a Jesus who died to bring us into allegiance to the greatest king. The one who is worthy of our worship and adoration. I'm going to ask you to stand as we close with a hymn of praise and invitation and response. I hope you'll wrestle with this text a little bit. I hope you'll think about it a little bit longer. I know I have, and I know I will. So we're going to pray that God will embed it in our hearts and minds and make us more like Him as a result of it. Father, we come to you this day, and I know that as I've studied and prepared and preached, I probably haven't done significant justice to this text, but I'm so grateful for Peter's absolute statements and the reminder that you, Lord, are our example and model. Help us where we have failed. Lord, where, we're, where our attitude is bent toward our rights and privileges as opposed to our responsibilities as Christians. Lord, help us. Make our attitude more like Christ. Help us to look to Jesus. Help us to glorify Jesus and praise Him. And Father, in all that we do, may our allegiance be firmly and permanently and gloriously focused on You, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who is the greatest and most wonderful, and most worthy of our adoration and praise. May that affect the attitude that we have to local government, to state government, and to our national government. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found.